0: You know, everybody, you know, who comes to Sunrise, you know, I have this reading program where I go through the Bible every year. I encourage you to do it. It's life-changing to read through the biblical text, to hear the stories, to get God's heartbeat and passion. Uh, But, you know, I find myself often, and I'm sure you do too, stumped. You sit there and you read a text, you're like, really? I mean... You do that. I mean, I'd never be caught dead doing that. It's easy for us as modern people to read into the Bible and look at the text and maybe get a little arrogant in our thinking and, and wonder about those poor primitive people who used to think things. And I, I encountered that. Uh, this last week, I was reading through the story of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the Ark is this box overlaid with gold, with the the angels on the top that they would carry. You've seen Indiana Jones. You know what I'm talking about. And um, and and so this one story, they're taking it out to battle, and it's captured. By the Philistines. The Philistines are the, the, the seafaring people that were on the region there by the Mediterranean. They had these five towns. And so they take it to one of their towns and all of a sudden there's problems and they move it around to all five towns. They eventually get it back to Israel. It's a great story, but there's this one part in there. I'm always just sitting there and thinking, man, are you stupid? You know, and, and, I was, and some of you are offended by that. Um, somebody said in the ESV they use that word. So I guess it's a Bible word, so I'm using it. Because I, this is what I saw. And every year I think to myself, Man, how could we do this as human beings? They take the Ark of the Covenant into their temple of their idol, Dagon. Now, we don't know by history what Dagon looked like necessarily, but we know what idols look like. Uh, Something made of stone, something made of wood, something made of metal. This one is made of stone, and they have him propped up on this stand, and Dagon's there. And they put what they think is the idol of, of Israel, which is the Ark. They think it's their God, and they put it down there as in victory. We've won over the gods of Israel. Well, the next day they come in and Dagon has fallen flat on the face down in the dirt. And so you know what they do? They pick Dagon up and they prop him back up on his stand and they come in the next day. And guess what? Dagon has not only fallen down on his face, his arms are broken off. So what do they do? They pick Dagon back up. And I'm saying, at this point, I'm going like, man, if you have to pick your God back up off the dirt every day, you might want to get a new God. Right? You know, it's like pick a better idol because that one's surely not working for you. And I sit there and I think, idols? I mean, how could anybody in their right mind bow down to something as an idol? One of the prophets says it this way. You go out to the forest and you take an axe and you cut down a tree. And with part of the tree, you carve out an idol and you put it on a stand and you worship it. And the rest of the wood, you, you kindle a fire and you cook your food and you eat your food. And all it is is just a piece of wood. It's just a piece of stone, just some metal that somebody has forged and fabricated an image. And you bow down to that. And I think to myself, how silly could it be to bow down to an idol? And I'm so glad we're modern. And i'm so glad that we're educated i'm so glad that we're experienced and, and and we're much more intelligent than those people of the past and we don't bow down to idols right yeah yeah exactly we just have made ours really good looking and we've hidden them right uh you know i i just thought about it this way i thought we do not build an altar to baal and we do not bow down to baal the fertility god but we worship sex and pleasure in our culture because it's an idol. We do not bow down and burn incense to Aphrodite. How ridiculous. But we spend all of our lives pursuing wealth and increasing our stores, our our barns, our bank accounts. We hoard and we bow down to that. We do not sacrifice our children to the fires of Molech. But we sacrifice our children to convenience, to our careers. We do not offer burnt offerings to Aphrodite or Diana, but we worship beauty. We worship beauty in magazines, on the internet, on television. Young ladies see these images of women that they're not, they're, they're not even real. They're Photoshop women, right? And, and we worship this image of beauty. I was reading just the other day, um, $500,000, a young lady has paid half a million dollars to look like Kim Kardashian, which I'm thinking, you do know that she doesn't even look like Kim Kardashian on her own. <laughs> Only Photoshop makes her look like Kim Kardashian. And so we spend our energy pursuing beauty. You know, the gods of the ancient days, the idols of the ancient world were ruthless. were bloodthirsty and were demanding of sacrifices. And my friends, they still are today. And we just are more modern and we couch them in terms that we would never call them an idol. But the Bible says anything we put first place in our lives other than the true God, the one God, the holy God, Yahweh God, anything else that is front and center in our lives that we put all of our focus on. That is an idol, whether it's uh, a real thing, like an object, like a house or a bank account, an achievement, like a degree Whatever the pursuit might be that we could physically touch it or whether it's an idea or an ideal scenario where we long for marriage and we long for a mate, we long for success, we long for some kind of improvement in our life. We long for respect and popularity, whatever that might be, whether it's tangible or intangible, that becomes first place in our life. The Bible says that's an idol. And whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we imagine it or not, whether we think about it in the same way, it's like we're bowing down to Dagon. We're bowing down to Baal. We're bowing down to Aphrodite. We're bowing down to Artemis. We're bowing down to these images. And God says, number one, don't make any foreign images. Don't make any false ideas of what God is because I am God alone. That's the most important thing. There's only one God and he is the true God. But you and I have been made to worship. You and I have been created to have a relationship with that God. And we read about it in the story of the Bible. The first couple chapters. It was beautiful till the third chapter shows up. And all of a sudden we've picked another God and that was ourself. And from that day forward, we struggle with this whole idea of bowing down and worshiping idols. And in our modern age, we think, huh, we'll just do away with God. Because if we can get rid of God, then we're not going to worship anything, right? (laughs) Even that doesn't work. I like what Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton wrote. He said this, uh, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything, right? Because we're beings created to worship. And if God is not front and center, then we'll put anything else front and center. If God is not in the center of our life or, as we could say, on the throne of our life, being the one that we wrap our lives around, then we will put something there. Ourselves, our images, our desires, whatever it might be. We were made to worship. We were created to worship. We can't just eliminate God because if we do that, we'll erect a godlike image to worship in our heart or in our minds, in our lives. I, if, if you read through the Bible, you read in 1 John. It's kind of a fascinating little statement at the very end of John's letter. Uh, Bible commentators look at that and go, what was John thinking? Because he writes this beautiful letter. And and this is this is the last thing he says. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Like, well, how does that? Is that parenthetical? I mean, is that just like, was it was he going to write more and ran out of ink? Uh, What happened? Because that's an interesting way to end your letter. I love how the New Living Translation says it. It says, dear children. Again, he's talking to believers here, followers of Jesus. Sons and daughters of the most high God. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. See, an idol is anything that you put in the most important spot in your life, whatever it is, unless it's the true God, the only one that deserves the front and center spot. Whether it's happiness, meaning, beauty, pursuits, whatever it is, my friends, anything that's most important to us or that we think will satisfy us. We think if we could just grab that one thing, if we could just pursue that thing, if we could achieve that thing and then that's going to satisfy us, that is an idol and it will let us down and it will disappoint us because it's still bloodthirsty. It's still ruthless. It's still demanding. And when we fall down before it, it will never deliver what we thought it would deliver. And it will disappoint us. What you desire will define you. It will direct you. I have this conversation with with my sons. You know, desires in and of themselves are not bad. They're they're normal. God put desires within us. But to think that a desire would be fulfilled is foolishness. Uh, Because no sooner than you fulfill the desire, then it needs to be met again, right? You desire... this This is my idol that I struggle with is that this food he says you know to eat there's pleasure some of you know what I'm talking about pleasure that comes by eating food and and it's like if I just have that and it's not stomach hunger I, I probably haven't felt stomach hunger in a long time I fasted for for five days with Seth for Luis Palau that's the first time I felt stomach hunger in probably a year right but head hunger oh, I get that oh it's 11:30. guess what I'm gonna be eating at 12 boy wonder what they're making back there at the family fellowship. That's going to be good. See, that's, that's, that's an idol. When I think that's going to satisfy me. Because it, it doesn't. Because I have to eat again, right? Wealth, you have it. it it's sex. It does, whatever your idol is whether it's addiction, alcohol, drugs, whatever, it it lies to us saying that will ultimately satisfy us, but it doesn't because desires don't satisfy us. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he said this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. What Lewis is saying is there is a God, and just the very... Desires that we have bear that out, that there are things that we long for that never satisfy, which tells us, hello, something else alone can satisfy. And it's not the stuff of the earth. It's the stuff of heaven that will satisfy us. Idolatry is not just the failure to obey God. It's setting something as most important besides God. Idolatry is not just a problem for ancient cultures. Primitive cultures, idolatry, idolatry is a problem for our American culture that we live in today. Idolatry is a heart issue. And if we take our desires and as Paul's going to say today, make them over desires, then we are going to be worshiping idols. Now, in the passage, you could turn there. We're in Galatians four verses eight to 20. Today, we're slowly walking through Galatians uh, page eight ninety two in your chair Bible. Before we go to that, I want to kind of give you an update. It could be a first time at sunrise, the apostle Paul went around as he went around the area of Turkey and Greece, he planted churches in this area of Turkey and he, he moved into an area. He shared about Jesus Christ. People received that. These are predominantly Gentile people because Jewish people, for the most part, rejected him as he went to synagogues and went to the communities. And so these Gentile people have become followers of Jesus. Gentile is non Jew. I'm I'm a Gentile. Okay, and I don't know. I haven't had a DNA test. We'll see. Um, but I'm a Gentile. And so I'm in this situation situation where I didn't, wasn't raised in a Jewish culture, obeying the laws, offering sacrifices. I just, you know, worship other gods. Right. And all of a sudden these churches are established. He leaves to go plant more churches. And he hears that Jewish believers in Jesus have moved in and have said, Oh, you have to be Jewish to fully be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. Cause Jesus was Jewish. You have to obey the laws of Moses. You have to worship on certain days. You have to take certain days off. You have to eat only certain foods. You have to be circumcised. you have to wash your hands a certain way, you have to treat foreigners a certain way, all these rules and laws of the Old Testament, 613, you have to obey them, and then you can be fully a follower of Jesus. And these people are succumbing to this lie, and they're buying it, and they're starting to add what? we would call legalism to their lives. Now, how this relates to us today is really simply is that churches are good for this. I mean, we are really known for being legalistic. And it's like if you do it a certain way, you worship a certain way, you wear a certain set of clothes, you, you talk a certain way, you sing a certain kind of songs, you, you have certain rituals and you mandate those for other people, then all of a sudden you've become a legalist. And what Paul is saying is Jesus plus nothing is everything. But if you add Jesus plus the law of Moses, you don't have Jesus anymore. You have a watered down version, a legalistic. If it's Jesus plus your own church style even or your own church whatever, then you gotta follow this way if you're really gonna love Jesus. Then you, you just basically are doing what the Galatians are doing. And within each of our hearts is a desire to do that. It's to somehow twist the simple, beautiful message of Jesus. I said faith, grace Salvation, just just that's all it is. And all of a sudden we add extra stuff to it and we code it and we add this extra thing. And now we're in the same situation the Galatians were in. So that's what he's saying. We're going to look through the passage starting in verse eight. Now, he says, before you Gentiles knew God again, he's talking to Christians, followers of Jesus who were Gentiles. They, they weren't raised Jewish before you Gentiles knew God. You were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. Now, what he's saying is, and they would have understood this, of course, because the Greeks before them, these are the Romans in the Roman time period here, Roman Empire. They would go to their cities. They would go to their marketplaces. There were gods everywhere. And, you know, this is how it worked. The sun rose up and primitive people said there must be a God, a God of the sun. There's a sun God. Egyptians have a sun God. Other ancient people have sun gods. Then the moon comes up. There's a moon God, you know, and if there's an eclipse, the God's angry, you know, there's a rain God. Why? Because the crop, the farmers need rain. So they pray to the rain God. Uh, there's a fertility God. So we need our crops to grow. We need our animals to have babies so we can have more agricultural crops and livestock and we need more wealth. So we pray to these gods. We bow down to these gods. What Paul is saying is before you Gentiles knew God, you worship these so-called gods. And it's interesting. He says that don't even really exist. Now, later on, he says the. You're going back to the useless spiritual principles of the world. What Paul is saying is, is that there's a natural propensity in all of us to worship, and if we don't understand it, we'll make it up ourselves, we'll figure it out, we'll call it something, and we'll fall down to that, right? We'll bow down to that. He said, You used to do that. And behind that, truly behind all of that, were false gods. They're not really gods, like the true God, but they're definitely spiritual forces. You know, the, the story of Genesis is that God creates everything. It's beautiful. And then one of the angelic beings, Lucifer, he wants to be in the place of God. And with pride, he wants to ascend to that throne and kick the real God off. And, and God casts him out of heaven. And many of the angels follow him. And we would call them now demons. And there's this spiritual warfare going on around all of us. And that sounds kind of freaky for some of us. But that's just the reality around us. We don't see and perceive. But there's a spiritual battle. And what Paul is saying is back in that day when you bow down before Baal, when you bow down before, or Zeus, when you bowed down before Diana, there was this spiritual reality behind it. Now, I'm not the kind of guy that sees demons behind every rock, okay? I don't, you know? Um, but but there is a spiritual reality that you're either worshiping the true God or everything else is false. And all the false comes from the enemy, Satan himself. And so what he's saying is is that they were so-called gods, but it it was what you took and you took a demon and made a deity out of. It was a spirituality that was filled by Satan. Now, that seems really harsh, and I understand that it doesn't work well in our modern minds. But you're either worshiping the true God, Yahweh God, or everything else is a lie. And you go, well, I'm not worshiping anything. Well, Paul says you're deceived because we all worship. I don't worship demons. Well, I know we wouldn't say it that way. And that's not so overt. But if you're not worshiping the true God, everything else is a lie. And what he says is back in the day before you knew God, you were slaves to these so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? You're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. Now, this is really harsh. What he's saying is by being legalistic, you've set that up as an idol. You've set, I'll use it in our modern way, uh, the clothing that you wear as an idol. And you're only religious, you're only spiritual if you dress a certain way. That's an idol. That's a demon-fueled idol. Because it's anything less than their day. He's saying certain days, certain holy days, certain months, certain you're setting aside things and saying, I'm worshiping God by doing that. But Paul says, I I have some news for you. It's not God you're worshiping. It's far from God you're worshiping. You're worshiping your own rituals and rules. And and this is a wake up call for all of us. And, And it's not a reality we often think about. But the truth is, either we're worshiping the true God or not, because everything else is a lie. It's not that you have, well, they're everybody in the world. And some of these people are choosing to worship Jesus. And then there's Anton LaVey and the church of Satan. And they're bad. And then the rest of us. Paul says the God of this world, Satan, is a liar and a thief. And he steals and kills and destroys. And, and he unleashes all of his forces to do that in the world. And so you're either worshiping God, the true God, or you're blindly following the demonic deities of this world. They're not really gods, though, but they sure do a good job fooling us. Now, a little little note here—it's it's really really kind of cool. Um, it's kind of a geek thing, but but I, you need to know it. This is kind of cool word here. He says, "Before you knew God," and then he says, "Now that you know God, or or should I say that God knows you?" Our English language often fails us in the way we communicate, even though we have so many words and we're adding to them all, uh, every year. Um, but but the words that we use. Often, uh, really pale in comparison to the words, the original writer. So when Paul is writing in the original Greek language, he uses this word here specifically before you Gentiles knew God. Now the word he uses for know at that point is the word that uh, would be best described as a knowledge of facts, um, a knowledge about something. I'm going to call it a head knowledge. Okay. He He says before you had a head knowledge of God before you knew God. He says, and you were slaves to this. It did not even exist. So now that you know, God, this is a different word. He uses the word. That's a knowledge that comes by experience, a knowledge that comes through a relationship, uh, that, a knowledge that has intimacy to it. And, and it is I'm going to call it a heart knowledge. OK, it's a little basic. But he says before you had head knowledge of God, but now you have heart knowledge of God. Can I take a moment and ask my, the question? What is your knowledge of God? Do you know God up in your head? That's great. It's a wonderful place to start. I have a lot of knowledge of God facts in my head. I read the Bible and I get knowledge of God in my head. But what matters is knowledge of God in your heart, that you have a relationship with him. The apostle Paul says in Philippians, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, he says, I want to know Christ. And he didn't use the head word. He used the heart word. He says, I want to have an intimacy, a knowledge by that's gained only by experience with him. I want to walk with him. I want to know him. Uh, For me, uh, i 've been married twenty two years dated my wife five years, I chased my wife five years, wore her out. she fell on the ground, I caught her, wrapped her up in a bag, and married her and so um, and men, if you wear them out, it works so that 's what I did. okay, all right, just be gentle and loving okay so twenty two years been married as of Friday uh, met her five years uh, to the day or day before that, and I had seen her the week before that on pictures on her piano in her room, doing a mission trip down to Richmond, staying in her room with one of the other guys, Daryl, she's away at college. And I saw this picture and I was asking about her and her brother was there, Steve. And, I had a lot of knowledge up in my head about her, but it took having breakfast with her to start to know her, to win her over with my charge. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's not how it worked. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and it took, it took five years to get to know her, but you know, I've had 22 years of being married to know her. See, that's the word that Paul says when I want to know Christ. I want, that's why we say Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's a knowledge. It's a walking, talking, breathing, living. For me, I get up in the morning and I read my Bible and I pray and I spend time with God. I talk to God. I, you know, I go for a run. I drive. I, I spend time with God. I, you know, that's a, that's a relational word. Versus just a, a dictionary fact word, right? Encyclopedia knowledge. And Paul says, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to these so-called gods that do not even exist. That's this whole idea of worshiping idols. So now that you know God relationally, or should I say, this is so pretty. This is gorgeous. Now that he knows you. Now that God knows you through a relationship. My friends, it's awesome to know God. It's amazing. And unbelievable to be known by God. When God reaches out to us and we open ourselves up to him and now we are known by this God that loves us and died for us. That's the epitome of what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Not that it's religion, not that it's rules, not that it's regulations, not that it's all the things we do to earn points or feel like we've satisfied the wrath of this God but that he wants to know us in the deepest parts of our lives. That is Christianity. That is following Jesus right there. And I hope, you know, I hope, I hope you have some knowledge of God. I hope that continues to grow in your life. That's important, but I hope you have real knowledge of God, the heart knowledge. I hope, I hope as people have said for years that the knowledge has moved the 18 inches down to your heart because some people know him up here, but it never makes the journey down here. I hope you know him now. Um, Paul's going to go on and he's going to uh, actually start sharing a little bit of his pain and the struggle he's facing. And it's very personal here. So let's let's jump into this. That was the theological argument. Now it's the personal argument. He says, I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Now, that's pretty desperate, right? I mean, if you've ever discipled someone, if you've led someone to Christ and you've walked with them along the journey, if you've ever had children. And you've raised them to know Jesus. And all of a sudden something happens and something turns and they throw you off and they throw off your belief. And they say, I'm not going to do that. You have a certain pain in your heart that you get what Paul is saying here. He says, I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you is for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. In other words, I'm a Jew by birth. And when I met Jesus, I discarded those laws. I, I gave them up. And I'm one that should have them. You're a Gentile. Why are you adopting those? I pray that you're like me. For I've become like you Gentiles free from those laws. And then he goes on. And this is is a long slide with a lot of text, but it's his heart. So let's read it. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me. You did not despise me or turn me away. Galatians is the first book that Paul has written, the first letter he's written. And uh, so he would have done this journey early. And we can read about his story in the book of Acts. But the simple fact is when you grab this and some other texts in the New Testament, um, Paul was not the one had the best health. He didn't have the best strength. Um, He had a lot of temptations, a lot of struggles, a lot of trials. He was shipwrecked, beatings, all kinds of things like that. But, you know, Bible commentators, theologians would say Paul had some physical issues. We know that. God gave him what Paul calls a thorn in the flesh, something to uh, remind him to not be too proud and puffed up because he had seen these visions and all these things. And he was Paul, you know, the preacher of of the message of Jesus. And he prayed three times. He prayed, God, please remove this from me. Uh, But God responded every time with, hey, you know, in your weakness, I'm going to show up strong. So my grace is sufficient for you. And so people wonder, is this what Paul is talking about? He says, you did not despise my, uh, despise me or turn away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? Here it is. I am sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Now it's not, it's not possible to know exactly if this is the condition, um, but we know that people in the ancient days, people even today in uh, non-developed countries like we have, that, you know, you, you have an eye problem. You, you go to, you know, one of the eye clinics, you go to an optometrist. And we got one of the greatest optometry schools out in Forest Grove, right? We, we, we're masters at this. We, we can laser correct people's eyes. I've had that done almost 20 years ago. I can see you, you know. Uh, now, the thing is, is that in other cultures, it's not as easy. There are diseases, there are, there are ailments, there are struggles, there are, there are things that come in that can cause a horrible disfigurement. And so people wonder is this kind of his thorn in the flesh? One of the scriptures he says, See with my own hand. You know, I write it large letters. Maybe he couldn't see. Maybe he was nearly blind, legally blind. Um, he dictated some of the letters through people that wrote him down. Maybe, maybe he could no longer write with his own pen anymore to see it legibly. I'm 53. I wear 1.5s when I'm at home. OK, it's like I need extra help to see. Imagine if you were legally blind or if you had an ailment or if your eyes, there was this gross disfigurement. If there was some kind of something there, he says, you know what I was like when I came to you. I came in weakness. I came in weakness. Th- the, he's just saying you cared for me like I was your family. And Paul pulls this out and he says, that's what it was like between us. You loved me so much and you treated me like an angel or Jesus himself. You would have pulled out your eyes and given them to me. But we're not in that condition anymore. Our relationship has changed. Now, some of you know it. As I said, some of you have sons or daughters that have gone astray spiritually. Some of you have discipled people that no longer follow the faith. Or they get gotten caught up and choked with the cares and concerns of the world or the faith grew up and all of a sudden it's just it just seems to have died. And you have this ache in your heart because your 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 son or your daughter, physical son or daughter, spiritual son or daughter, grandparent, son or daughter, you know, grandson, your aunt, uncle, someone. You have people that you've poured your life into and now they look at you differently and they don't want anything to do with your faith. You know what that's like to have that kind of pain and you pray for them and you're on your knees for them every night and you ache in your heart. That is what Paul's going through right now for these people. He said, I'd give my very life for you if you would just come back. And he wraps it up with a couple more slides. He says, if I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth. Wow. Some of you have lost friendships over things that real or perceived in the gap of your relationship. Suspicion came in. And now that person doesn't trust you anymore. Instead of filling it with trust, they fill it with suspicion. And every time they saw this thing happen, they, they imagined and imagined. And pretty soon you're sitting there. It's like, oh, didn't we used to eat together? Didn't we used to go to church together? Didn't we used to walk together? And now I'm an enemy. And you know what it's like to have that. Some, some of your family has rejected you for following Jesus. And you're like, but we used to, but not anymore. You know the ache in your heart. When Satan has like blinded the eyes of people and led them astray. This is what Paul is saying. Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They're trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right. But let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. And then he closes this section with these words. Oh, my dear children. I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone. But at this distance, I don't know what else to do to help you. Can you can you feel that pain? Spiritually, he's like a father to these children. He's like a mother to these children. Paul uses those words in the way he treated the, the believers that he discipled and nurtured. He says, I was like a mom toward you. I was like a dad toward you. And now you don't even want to have anything to do with me. And some of you get it on the physical. You have it on the relational. You know that emotionally. Imagine on the spiritual side. And Paul is just saying, I I don't know what else to write. I don't know what else to do. I've, I've shared it every which way I could. And yet I wish I could just be with you. Now that is some intense wrestling and pain. But that's what Paul signed up for, my friends. Anybody that's in ministry, anybody that's discipling people, any mom or dad takes a risk of being rejected one day. And that is harsh. If that would ever happen. I mean, God forbid that would happen. But you know that it's a reality at times when you've raised spiritually raised, physically raised a son or a daughter. And then at one point, they don't want anything more to do with you or it's your mom or dad. Because of your faith in God or because of some lies that have been believed. They don't want anything. You know that there's this separation that causes it's like a death in the relationship. And it's so incredible. I'll tell you this. Anybody that jumps into ministry will eventually ultimately experience that. When you see your sons or daughters, your children out there and they're struggling and they're flailing and maybe it's they're bowing down to idols or they're believing lies or whatever. These these people were believing lies. False teachers were telling them, right? And they are going down the wrong path and you just ache for that. That is the price you pay for ministry. That is the price you pay sometimes for being a mom or dad and giving everything for them. Because you can't guarantee how people are going to turn out, right? You can't guarantee that it's all going to work out even with the best parenting or the best disciple making. Because they are an independent person under God and man, Satan may deceive them and wrap his lies around them. And that is what Paul has going through. I like how Paul says it, and he writes this in Colossians. It's a beautiful text. It's, it, it's just his heartbeat. Anybody in ministry, this is your heartbeat, right? So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. In other words, Paul says... I'm like a spiritual dad to, to, for him, hundreds, thousands of people right now, as time's gone by millions and billions of people, right? Because we've read the words and we've been saved under the words of Paul of Jesus, right? We get it. He says, but you, you give your life over to it and it's not always the easiest thing. Anybody in ministry, anybody that's joined in in parenting, anybody that's taking some kind of parental, physical, spiritual role over others. It consumes you. And that's okay because you signed up for it. Because you know you're living not for yourself, you're living for the next generation, right? And if it doesn't work out, your heart just breaks. You know, that's ministry. You need to be in a ministry where people care for you like that, where they love you and shepherd you. I know Sunrise is a big church. It's easy to hide in a big church. I would say some of you come... Because you can hide in a big church, you wouldn't dare show up to a church of 150 because people would get to know you. And that would be really upsetting. You know, I just want to go to church. I want to sneak in. I want to hear my thing. I want to leave. I don't want anybody to shake hands. I, I just, I just want to, I, I know it's easy to hide, but can I tell you something? If that's the only experience you have with the body of Christ, when, and not if, but when the tragedy happens, you will have no support system. You need people to love you and care for you. You need to be in shepherding relationships. You need to be in small groups, accountability groups, discipleship relationships. You need to be hanging out, building a life with other people. We have the family of God, the church of God. And God forbid, but it will happen. You will end up at the hospital. You will end up with a son or daughter astray. You will end up with a tumor. You will end up with cancer. You will end up with questions that you don't know what to do with. There will be a crisis in your life. And if you have lived your life separate as an orphan and you have a family available to you, where will you go? You need the family of God, my friends. And the healthy times and the unhealthy times and the easy times and the difficult and painful times, because this is what God has built on the earth to represent Jesus Christ amongst ourselves. And when we do this, it's messy. We, we don't, we don't get it right all the time. We don't get all the emails. We don't get all the hospital visits, but I'm telling you, you need people shepherding you and you need to be shepherding other people because that's what the family of God is all about. If you just fly in and fly out, if you just drive in and drive out, if you just hide in the dark places, uh, when the difficulties come, you won't have anyone to reach out to. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully it comes across the right way. As a pastor, I would echo these words. Man, I've given my life to this. I mean, my life to this. this is my, when, I, when I'm gone one day, it's like I want to be able to go knowing that I poured everything out to people. Why? Because that's the only thing that's going to last for all eternity. And we get to disciple people. My three sons, I love my sons. You know, they're, 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 they're just wonderful. But I can't guarantee they're going to love Jesus the rest of their life. But I'm going to pour everything into them. And if they go astray, I'm going to still love them. If they see me as an enemy, I'm going to still love them. If they become the prodigal son, I'm going to still love them. I'm going to still search for them. I'm going to still embrace them when they run, come back to me. And, and you know what? You need that in your life. And you need people that will shepherd you. Now I'm going to ask a personal favor. I have a prayer team that prays for me and it's made up of just a a small group of people. I want to blow that open with a lot of people praying for me. Um, I have this sheet here. This is Pastor James prayer partner ministry description seat, sheet that um, I shared at our serve class this last month, and it talks about joining me as prayer partner on the back. It's uh, a list. I update every six months or a year. Uh, some it's a great outline that Pastor D Duke shared with me years ago down in Jefferson, a great man of prayer, uh, dear friend, and uh, much prayer, much blessing, little prayer, little blessing, no prayer, no blessing. I want a lot of prayer. Okay. And and I need that. And I'm going to invite you at the family fellowship time in the back afterwards to come up and look me in the eye and say, Pastor James, I'll pray for you. Or look me in the eye and say, Pastor James, I want your sheet so I can pray for another pastor. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not going to be offended because we all need it. Right. And I've got my email there. I would love to send out just a response. Every week or so, just say, yeah, I got a meeting. Would you pray for me? I got a hospital visit. I'm driving to, you know, OHSU or something like that. Or I'm going, you know, down to Tuolity. I need your prayers. I'm going to Avamir, I'm going to witness to someone. I'm going to, it's been a really rough day. I can't for life me finish this sermon. Pray for me. You know, things like that. Please, please join my prayer team. If you're going to pray. Um, I'd love to have you on that because we are a family together and and you need all the pastors and ministers and shepherds and leaders over you. And you need to be praying for them because they're doing what Paul says here. They're giving their very lives to this. Let me close by coming back to that question about knowledge. Do you know God? I hope you know God up here in your head. I hope you hope you do. But what I really hope is that, you know, God in your heart. That you have an intimate relationship with God that you have a knowledge of experience that you walk with him and talk with him? My grandma's favorite hymn in the garden. Some of you are old enough to know what it is. You could start singing it right now. right? I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And, and in this writing in this beautiful hymn, the writer talks about Francis uh, Habergale talks about it's this intimacy of being with Jesus. I hope you have it. My friends. Don't make Christianity religion. It'll disappoint you. <laughs> make it a relationship with the very God who loves you, Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. We love you. I mean, I hope we know you. I hope here you send out your spirit to communicate the, in the deep parts of our lives the truth of our spiritual condition, whether it's a knowledge of the head alone or it's a knowledge of the heart as well. God, I pray that um, we would be the church family that doesn't just drive in and drive out, but that we come together and we worship together and celebrate together and we draw close to each other and that everybody here would be spiritually connected to other people to care, to share, to build a life together, Father. So that when, and not if, but when the difficult times come, we have family to lean upon and to hold on to because that is what you've established, the body of Christ on the earth, the church. May we lean into that, Lord. In the good and bad times. Father, we pray that um, amidst the journey of even this week, that we would carve out time in our lives and our hearts to know you. Because you want to know us. And you, the God of all creation, you want to walk with us and talk with us this week. May that be the driving force of our life. We pray in your name. Amen.